Good morning, all. Well, we have our customary snowfall here on Sunday. So, I saw two robin birds outside my window yesterday. Now, I don't know what that means. The scientists say it doesn't mean anything. In my world, that means an early spring. So, I'm hanging on to that. Hope you will, too. <laughs> and I want to just uh, mention one more thing about this coming Wednesday and the dinner with Steve Gladen. It's going to be a, a very inspiring time and uh, also very pivotal to this uh, series that we're going to begin in a couple of weeks called Transform. Now, hear, the, hear these subjects again. Uh, balance, wholeness, health in all of these areas. Think about this. Spiritual health, physical health, mental health, emotional health, relational health, financial health, and vocational health. These seven areas, categories of life, really covers a wide, gam wide range, uh, the entire gambit of our experience in life. And God cares about all dimensions of our life, all the aspects of our life. And so this is going to be a, a transforming series, and it's going to add great value. So I want you to be part of it. On Wednesday, this is an important kickoff event that will give us context uh, for what God wants to do. So we're all coming. So be sure and get signed up today, and I'll see you for the free dinner on Wednesday night. Uh, you can't beat that, Bubba. I mean, it's a free date. So uh, get, it, get, it, get signed up, and we'll, we'll see, you, see you then. I did want to make uh, one mention of the series that we're currently in called Now I See You. Last week uh, was the first message in this series, and it was entitled Bridging the Racial Divide. And I don't think um, probably in the last seven or eight years has there been as much feedback and activity response to a message uh, like we did from last week's message. So if you were not here or you have not uh, gone online to listen to it, let me just encourage you to go uh, give an ear to it and uh, see what you think. Uh, because it's, uh, it's stimulated a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion, and I think some, uh, some important perspectives. So uh, grab a hold of that. Today's uh, message is bridging the gender divide. Uh, there, there, is, there is a gap, a bit of a gap between men and women uh, in our world. And I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. I hope it will be encouraging to you. Our text is all the way to the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read two verses there just to give us some uh, foundation and some context for this message. So as you're able, would you please stand to hear Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. May God instruct us through this important truth. You may be seated. These are days of amazing change and unprecedented opportunity for women in our culture. If you'll think about it with me, a century ago, education for women was relatively rare and often thought unnecessary. But today, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, there are more women than men in college, more women in their late 20s who have completed college and in most recent years, 57% of all master's degrees have been granted to women. 
So great progress. In politics, uh, less than a century ago, women did not have the constitutional right to vote. But beginning in 1998, think about that, that's relatively recent, more women now vote in national elections than men. There's a growing number of women in Congress and serving as federal judges, etc. So we see progress. The salaries of women executives have increased over 100% in the recent 10 years. Fortune 500 boards have 34% more women serving on them than they did as recently as 2000. Here's a statistic that will be especially interesting to you. In the home, the number of women holding the remote control while watching TV with their husband or boyfriend more than doubled in the 2000s, increasing from 0.2% to 0.4%. It's incredible progress. Obviously, the trends indicate that we are moving in the direction of greater opportunity and greater fairness for women. So why bring up this issue in the discussion of the divides uh, in our culture? Well, Genesis 1.27 reminds us, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So God made human beings, men and women, to live together in harmony, in oneness, in community, in mutual servanthood, and submission to one another. But it all got junked up at the fall, in the Garden of Eden, when men and women first failed in sin. It didn't just mess up their relationship with God, it also messed up their relationship with one another, the relationship between the genders. When God asked the man, why did you do it? Why, why did you eat the forbidden fruit? You remember what Adam said? He said, look, the woman, you know, the one you gave me, she did it. It was her idea. <laughs> and so it went. The tension then and enmity which arose between men and women at the fall lasts to this moment. And the tragic divide that exists now in the human race between the two image bearers of God, men and women. You see this most poignantly displayed in the number of divorces occurring in our culture. We have a quadrupled divorce rate since 1960. We, we now know that more than half of all marriages end in divorce. And you see it in charges and counter charges related to sexual harassment, restraining orders, difficulties in working together, mishandled sexuality, domestic violence, mishandled power, just simply not knowing how to relate to each other. The intent, the intention with which God made us male and female has been damaged, badly damaged. But here's what I, here's what I believe. Uh, men and women are to relate to one another not just as a matter of legislation or economic structures or vocational opportunities, but it is essentially and fundamentally a spiritual dynamic. It's a, it's a relationship with the God who made us and a desire to honor Him in all of those relationships. God's plan was to make human beings, male and female, different from one another with differences that are to enhance and complete and delight one another. The... The equal rights movement, the women's movement of the 60s and 70s in this country, which did, did change some laws and, and, and eventually change culture, was a good thing when, when, when it uh, touted the notion that men and we, women are equal. Because men and women are equal. We are equal in every way. One does not have more value than the other. Men and women are equal. Where this uh, social and political movement 
got off track and, and, and over the boundaries is to suggest that while men and women are equal, we are also the same. And I want to submit to you that men and women are not the same. We are different. But again, in God's design, that was beautifully done to enhance and complete and to benefit both. And so if we can understand our differences and learn to bridge those differences, then we will live in a more honoring way. Let me just uh, talk about a few of these ways that we can bridge these differences. The first I want to mention is communication. Deborah Tannen, who's a social linguist at the University of Southern Cal, wrote a book several years ago entitled, You Just Don't Understand. There's been a number of books written in the last uh, 10 or 20 years on this subject of the communication uh, disjointedness that happens between men and women. And her thesis, uh, in a nutshell, is that communication between men and women is as many ways cross-cultural communication. This is the phrase she uses, as if to say men and women grow up and live in different cultures. So we tend to perceive and experience life differently from one another. Now, before we get into some of these differences, let me just say that these will be generalizations. And anytime you're generalizing um, and paint with a broad brush, obviously you're not touching everybody. And everybody's unique, and everybody is special, and everybody is complex, and there's no way that we can say about everybody, a particular gender, all of these things are true. But for the sake of a 30-minute talk, there has to be some generalization, and I hope you understand. So while broad generalizations are written about and offered in such books like Deborah Tannen's, and she bases it on research, the answer to why we are different is uncertain. We know we are different and that our communication is different, but we're not sure why all that's true. Maybe it's how we were raised, maybe it's our biology, maybe it's just the result of this, this collapse that occurred in the Garden of Eden and as a result of the fall and sin that entered the world. But nevertheless, um, we, we know that these differences exist, but we're not really sure why. So, Tannen writes, a man tends to experience the world as a hierarchical social order in which he is either one up or one down. And I, generally that's true. This is the way men see the world. It's, 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 there are degrees, there are status, and so you're either one up or one down, and that's, that's how a man then lives in it. He's generally driven to protect himself from others' attempts to push him around. His goal in conversation, generally is to preserve his independence and to avoid failure. His goal in conversation generally is to preserve this sense of identity and independence. His experience is that he must have status or dominance for emotional survival. Status or dominance. This is his experience. Now, set that on one side, and then Tannen also writes about women they tend to experience the world as a kind of network of relationships. Her conversations tend to be negotiated for closeness where the goal is to preserve intimacy and avoid isolation. Her experience, remember the man's experience, according to Tannen, is that he must have status or dominance for emotional survival. Her experience is she must have connection for emotional survival. So for a man, it's about where he fits on the scale. And for a woman, it's about how intimate the connections are. 
These two cultures lead to very different communication styles. For example, you have two guys in a locker room. Uh, and one guy looks at the other guy and he says, that's quite a gut you've got there. You know, you ought to give it its own name or its own zip code. That's quite a gut. Now, when a man says that to another man in the locker room, he's not trying to be mean. He's just trying to establish gut dominance. There has to be a pecking order with guts. That's the way it works. And so the topics that the men will talk about after they jab each other about their guts is they'll talk about jobs or sports or the stock market. And then men will go out and they'll play basketball or they'll play tennis or they'll play golf. All of which are games which you keep score so you know at the end who has won and who has lost. That's important for men. I remember when I was playing tennis regularly at the Y, I was in a league one of the evenings and there was a four-court league where there are four sets of doubles teams, actually eight sets of doubles teams, so 16 guys playing in, in these four courts in a league. And the way the league was structured was on the first night, however many games you won in a particular set, you would score a point for each game that your team won. And at the end of the night, you would add up all those points. So, for example, if, if you play the first set and you win the set six games to four, then you get six points and your partner gets six points. And your opponents only get four points. And then at the end of the night, you add up the total number of points you've won based on games won. And so the next week, then the organizer of the league assigned you to a court one through four based on the number of points that you had scored the week before. And, and so I can tell you what happens is you want to be on court one or court two because these are the guys who can play. You don't want to be down on court four because the only guys on court four are either the guys who can't play or the only reason they're there is because their wife made them come. <laughs> it's very competitive. So the first couple of weeks of the league, I mean, it's serious and right now. And I liked it that way. When there's conversation between two women in a locker room, one woman might say, I hate my thighs. They're like tree trunks. Now the other woman would never say to her friend, yeah, you're right, you could crush coconuts with those things. She, she just wouldn't, that's, this is not how women talk to each other. The other woman is likely to say, no, your legs look great. Plus, I love your hair. I would kill to have hair as thick as yours. Mine is so stringy and so thin. Then after the conversation, they'll go do aerobics or yoga. Listen, nobody ever wins at yoga or aerobics. Because it's not about that. If men are watching TV and the chip bowl is, in, is empty, they'll actually get in an argument about who should go get the chips, replace the chips. One guy will say, hey, look, I bought the chips. And the other guy will say, yeah, but it's my bowl. And the third guy will say, yeah, but it was my idea. And they'll sit there and fuss about who's going to get the chips. Women gathering chips tends to be a communal event. First, there's a discussion about whether they should have more chips. And if it's decided that they should have more, then they all go into the kitchen and gather chips as a group. Decision-making for women is often an opportunity for connection. It's about consensus. It, it tend, tends not to go that way for men. Decision-making is an opportunity to assert independence. So they want to do it on their own. They want to establish dominance in some way. Social scientist Aaron Beck summarizes a large body of research regarding the fact that boys and girls uh, grow up differently. He said, boys 
tend to play outside in large groups that are hierarchically structured and within the group dominance is the key to status. These groups tend to have a leader who tells the other boys what to do and resists proposals from others in the group. Conversations between boys tend to have a lot of commands and boasts and insults. Some of you mothers worry about your sons when they engage in this kind of behavior. Uh, relax. It's normal. How many times I had to coach Beth off the ledge. I, you will never believe what your son said outside playing with his friends this afternoon. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I probably believe that. <laughs> I, can, I can believe that. Girls, on the other hand, tend to play in small groups or pairs. The center of a girl's social life tends to be her best friend. And within the group, intimacy is the key to status. So girls tend to be good at reading emotions and responding effectively. This is, this is something that's developed in, in girls and then becomes part of a woman's MO. This is something that totally has escaped me. And one of the great values of being married is, is that I can turn to Beth from time to time and say, what, what is that person feeling? What is going on with them? What are they... Why are they behaving that way? And she'll say, oh, it's about this and this and this. There are times in my life when I turn to my wife and say, what is it that I'm feeling? <laughs> and she will tell me what I'm feeling. Oh, you're just angry. I am? She said, yeah. I said, okay, well now I know what's wrong with me. <laughs> I'm angry. I just didn't know. It, just, it, it was hard for me to connect with that. Uh, but with girls, they're more likely to express preferences with one another or tell secrets as an indication of intimacy. Girls tend to use phrases like, let's do this, or how about doing that? Boys tend to say, give me that, or get out of here, or you better not, or I'm going to, you know, that's the kind of talk that boys... For girls, words are used as bridges. For boys, words are used as weapons. And... So come to terms with it. We're different. Now here are the implications. Men, when they grow up, are quick to use words in public settings. Words are often stress-producing for men in public. And so most men tend to retreat from words in private. Public words, while stress-producing, are, are more easily read and readily available for men than private words. Because then it becomes even more stress. For women, words are often stress relieving. They indicate connectedness and intimacy. So if you find two people who get married and one finds words stress producing and the other finds words stress relieving, it can, it can create challenges. It, it can really cause a problem. I heard the story of a small group discussion and one of the sets of parents in the small group were describing their daughter for, who came home from a high school athletic event in lacrosse and described a moment when she got nose to nose with an opponent and it was one of those, you know, they were, gonna, they were getting after each other competitively and they were nose to nose until one of them looked at each other right in the face of the other and said, what kind of eyeshadow you're wearing? <laughs> Completely dissolved the whole moment. Can you imagine two guys in the football field? You know, nose to nose. What is that cologne you're wearing? You know, that's a good way to get. That's a good way to get beat up. That's not going to work. Another parent reported that his teenage son had been with a traveling companion 
a friend in a pickup truck. The, the trip lasted six hours. He said, Dad, we didn't have to stop for anything. And the coolest thing about the trip is that neither one of us said a word <laughs> for six hours. That was friendship to this kid. It was freedom because he didn't have to prove himself. He didn't have to de defend his turf. He didn't have to establish dominance. They could just be together. And that was really good. Aaron Beck again says this affects communication in marriage. He summarizes. From a woman's perspective, this relationship is working so long as we can keep talking about it. From a man's perspective, this relationship is not working so long as we have to keep talking about it. Can you see where this would cause conflict? If I'm going to bridge the communication gap, then I may have to work a little harder at understanding the needs of the other person who tends to live in a different culture from me. In, in our marriage, we have had to learn how to do this. And I, and I will say that Beth has been much more gracious about this in giving than I have been, although we both have to work at it. And in, in our case, we are, we are a classic example. When I get home, typically, at the end of a day, I am out of words. I'm out. This is especially poignant come about lunchtime today. I will be done talking. And if it were up to me, done talking until about Wednesday. <laughs> but I know that Beth will need... To have some conversation because that's how she processes her world. And so I have to at least be willing to listen in an attentive way. When someone is speaking, uh, a man responds with nods and goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now when a man is listening to someone else talk and goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, this is what the man means. I agree with you. I agree. When a woman, this is a setup now, this is, this is a sucker punch. When a woman goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, she doesn't mean, I agree with you. What she means is, I'm listening, keep talking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She, she, she says, okay, I'm encouraging you because I'm listening, keep talking. So when a man is speaking with his wife or a woman and he's talking and she's going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, he interprets that as she agrees with me. There we go. Got it settled. It's all, all fixed up. But what she's doing is, mm, no, I'm listening. I'm listening. Keep, keep, keep talking. I love this. Look, you're talking. It's so beautiful. Keep doing it. She wants more of that. And, of course, he's quickly finished believing that she is in full agreement. And all you've done is make her angry because you stopped talking. Um, Look at James chapter 1, verse 19 on the screen with me. My dear friends, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. So this is our model, isn't it? And it's a challenge to live and grow. So that's, that's a communication piece. We have to somehow understand that we're from, we're from a different perspective, a different culture. And we've got to make accommodation for each other so we can connect. Now, here's the second bridge that we need to build, and it's in the area of sexuality. I mean, we have to talk about this. This is a unique challenge. Sexual chemistry has always existed between men and women. It has always brought amazing joy and meaning and delight when it's handled well. 
when it's handled well. And it also, also has brought untold pain and devastation when it's mismanaged. Now, this isn't new, is it? But we have, to, we have to think about it. While we've always had sexual chemistry at work, there are two things that I think are unique to our particular generation, our time. One is this. We live in a world more saturated with sexual messages than at any time in history. That's not debatable. You, you just can't get away from it. We're flooded with it, bombarded with sexual images and sexual messages. They're everywhere. Mass media, movies, the internet. It has become a substantial part of our environment. And it's an environment that has become sexually charged. And let me just prophesy to you. More and more in our world, this is a global, this is a global reality. More and more in our world, sexuality is going to become front and center in, in the worldview of, of the human race. It is, it is a big deal. A sexual energy is a powerful energy and all the more reason for us to understand God's best design for the expression of our sexuality and to live in that expression as honorably as we can. The second thing that makes our generation unique, I think, is we live in a new relational reality. Think about this. For most of history, when you went to the marketplace, men worked with men. That was true historically. Today it's different. Men and women work together. They share office space, workspace, projects. Men and women may be assigned to travel together, be involved in negotiations, teach together. The whole gambit of business and the work environment now is commingled, men and women together. And this reality has added unusual pressure to marriage relationships. The workplace can be an intimacy-producing environment. I mean, you spend the best hours of your day collaborating with a person of the opposite sex, giving your best, all of the energy and, and, your, and your passion and all the things that, that, that draw you to your career and draw you to your work, and you're engaging that activity with people of the op opposite sex, it can become, it can become difficult to manage. If, if this is the world you live in, and again, consumes the best hours. You come home exhausted, depleted, and therefore you share very little common ground with your spouse. It's a setup for serious problems. And we need to be eyes wide open about this. So how do we respond? Well, one way to respond to this is just to isolate yourself. You say, oh, I, just can't, I, can't, I can't handle this sexual tension, this attraction, and... I'm attracted to someone who's not my spouse, and I don't, I don't know what to do with it. So you can just assume a, an isolation mentality, determine that you're not going to place yourself in a work environment that will provide intimacy opportunities. You don't have lunch with, you don't travel with members of the opposite sex, you treat people of the opposite sex like they have cooties. You just stay away from them. And that's one way to do it. If that's your choice, good luck with that in a world now that will bombard you with sexual Im images and innuendo. In Jesus' day, you should be uh, aware, some rabbinical sects made a vow to never look at a woman. So some of these rabbis took a vow, I will never look at a woman. <laughs> and so they actually got the nicknames, the, the, the sect of the, the bloodied and bruised rabbis. 
And the reason they were bloodied and bruised is because they, they walked around with their heads down like this. So they would not look, even look at a woman. They were just constantly running into stuff. Running into walls, running into poles. <laughs> They're messed up. So if you, if you want to join that sect, you know, be, buy a helmet at the same time. That, that's right. But this was not the strategy of Jesus. Think about this. Jesus actually established a community in which men and women would learn together, relate to one another, and occasionally travel together doing ministry together. There would be times when Jesus' entourage with his disciples would include a spattering of women, so the ministry team actually included both men and women. A totally revolutionary idea, especially in his time and day. So what do I do if I'm in a working relationship with someone of the opposite sex and I feel a spark of attraction to them while I'm married to someone else. What happens? You know, my, my wife Beth works in an environment with other men. She does. And so the question is, does she develop significant meaningful relationships with some of them? And the answer is, of course. Absolutely. It, it's inherent with the job. And then the subsequent question is, does she find some of them more attractive than me? What are you, crazy? <laughs> It's never going to happen. It's not, it's not even an issue. Come on. Crazy question. So whether you're single or married, when will you cease to be aware of the members of the opposite sex and that they're attracted to you or you're attracted to them? At what point in your life will you, will you not have to worry about that attraction? And the answer is, some of you are wondering about this, the answer is, when you're dead. When you're dead. And for some of you guys, it'll be sometime after that. That's all right. I'll laugh at my own stuff if you don't want to laugh. That's fine. That was funny right there. I don't care. But here's what you don't do. Feeling guilty or ashamed or beating yourself up over this is not a good idea. Oh, geez, I feel attracted. I feel, I feel attracted to a person of the opposite sex in my workplace. I'm a fool. Oh, I'm, I must be a horrible person. I'm just, I'm just terrible. Wait a minute. Don't feel bad. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel ashamed for that. I mean, after all, that's, that's the way God made us. I want to blame somebody. Blame God. He made us this way. You've heard me say this. The day that God invented sex, I, he was in a really nifty mood that day. I mean, really. Sex is a good thing. And we do have this natural capacity for attraction. So it's not bad. It's, it's almost inevitable. And God said it's good. In fact, after the creation of Adam and Eve, God said, that's really good. That's very good. Remember? And so it's a good thing. So here's the key. Handle it wisely. The better something is, the better something is, like sex, which is a really better something, the better something is, the more destructive it becomes when it's handled unwisely. Now hear that. Let me just give you three tests. That will help you stay on track in cross-gender relationships. Here's the first one. I call it the spouse test. The spouse test. Am I relating to this person in a way that would allow my wife, my husband, to remain comfortable if she were here watching? 
If I'm engaging in a relationship in a way that I would want to protect from my spouse, then that's an indication that I'm over the line. Would I be comfortable relating to this person the way I'm relating to them if my wife were present or my husband? Here's the second test. I call it the sibling test. Is, the, is this interaction one that I would also have with my sister or my brother, my sibling? Are my feelings, expressions, and behaviors with this other person consistent with what I would have with my sibling? Look at a verse with me. This is 1 Timothy 5, uh, 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Now, there's a guideline, right? That's helpful. Now, th this isn't isolationism, which I don't recommend. It can include deep levels of personal intimacy, Hear me now. Relationship with members of the opposite sex in the workplace or in a, on a committee or on a team, ministry team, or, or some social gathering, a small group, there can be deep levels of, of personal intimacy with members of the opposite sex. Listen, with purity. With purity. And you're the one who knows the difference. Here's the last test. I'll call it the platform test. Am I relating to this other person in such a way that if someone made a mo movie of it and showed it on the screens before the whole church, would it be okay? We could have called this the screen test. <laughs> so the spouse test, the sibling test, and the platform test. Establish your own ground rules. You've, there has to be boundaries. And you have to, you have to establish the rules. Listen, you can't wait until you're in a moment where it's a, a little awkward and there's some tension and, and there's some energy in the room. You, you can't wait till that moment to establish boundaries, to draw, draw lines. You have to do that ahead of time, whether it relates to travel or private meetings or late hour rules. These are, these are three of the rules that I have. I, I, I do not travel alone with a woman who's not my wife. Not in my car, not on a plane, no one. I just, that's just one of my boundaries. I, I, I don't cross it. Another one is private meetings. I do not meet privately with a woman who's not my wife. Not for lunch, not even out in public, not, not alone. No private meetings uh, in any setting. I just, that's a rule. That's one of my boundaries. Another is late hour rules. Uh, there are... Many women who serve on the staff of our church here, and there are more women on our staff than there are men. So the office is full of women, you know, wonderful creatures, lovely women, love God and love their spouses. And when they're single, you know, they're great people. And here they are. They're, they're lovely folks to be around. And, and so one of my rules is, look, I'm not going to be in the office uh, with the potential of being alone with someone on our staff after Hours. Just, it's just one of my rules. It's just a boundary that I keep. So if someone says, you know, I saw you out to lunch with so-and-so, I say, no, you didn't. I saw you in the car with a woman who wasn't your wife, and I'll say, no, you didn't. Because that doesn't happen. Or, you know, why were, the, why were the lights in your office on until 10 o'clock, you know, Tuesday night? 
beats me because I wasn't in there. <laughs> I can tell you that. Because it just doesn't happen. And there are reasons for that. So you just want to keep the boundaries. Now, do I have close personal relationships with women who are not my wife? I do. I do. But, but you have to keep the boundaries in place. Now, could I just challenge you for a moment? Because this, this is a big deal in our culture. It's a, it's a, big, it's a big, big deal. And, and folks fail at this every day of the world. And I'm talking to folks this weekend. I know I am. I, I did it last night. I'm probably doing it now. I'll do it at 1030. Listen, if this is an area in your life that you need to deal with, then deal with it. And, and get the boundaries established. And if, if you're in a relationship right now that is making you uncomfortable, then you need to get out of it. Back up. And protect your marriage and your covenant. Think about the legacy you want to leave. With your spouse, with your children, with your church, with your community. What kind of legacy are you leaving in this area? Are you on track in this area? Or, do you, or is God calling you to do some work? That's, that's my only challenge. All right. Now we're off of that. Because you, you, you feel the tension, don't you? It's real. It's real stuff. But don't go, don't go like this. Like, don't pretend like it's not there. Embrace it for what it is. Just keep it honorable. That's the key. All right. The last, uh, the last bridge that we need to build is in the area of servanthood. And this is really, this is really the solution to this, to this chasm, this gap. Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, we have been more interested, it seems, in getting the other person to do what I want rather than making sure the needs of the other are met. And this is, this is a classic problem with men and women. So much of the gender rhetoric today is simply about power. Women trying to claim it and men trying to hold on to it. Women make the mistake of attempting to claim the same level of control and power of men. Now women, listen to me, especially you professional women and you uh, progressive women. Listen, if you're merely trying to claim the same power and control of men, then you are aiming way too low. Way too low. You, you, don't, you don't want to be the same as men. You want to be uniquely you as a woman who's, who God has designed. Equal to men, but distinct from, different from, unique from. Um, and let me just say to single persons, because single, single living is, a, is a, a very common thing in our culture today. Singleness Despite what you think or what you've heard, singleness is not being incomplete in any way. Listen, and that's not the only truth. Whether we are married or whether we are singled, here's the, here's the truth. We need each other. Women need men. You can be a single woman, but listen, you still need men in your life. And, and, and men, a man may be single, but you still need women because of the of the variety and the perspective and, and, the, and the, the completeness, the joy of it. You, let me just remind you, we are the only two creatures in all of, of the order of God's, of God's world that are the image bearer of God. We, we, co, we are the co-bearers of the image of Almighty God, men and women. 
There's nothing like us in all of creation. And we need each other to get, a be to get the best understanding of who the God is we serve. Because we bear his image, men and women. One without the other, incomplete. And so we need each other. God calls us in a community of mutual delight, joy, chemistry, servanthood, honor. It really matters. Let me just end with this. Near the end of Jesus' life, he came into the room one night and he had a towel over his arm and he had a basin of water. Remember this? And he, he knelt down in front of each one of his disciples and he washed their feet. And he simply said to them, because I'm washing your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. In other words, he said, serve one another. Meet the needs of the other. And this will be the way you can model best my example. And that's what it's going to take in our relationship with one another, men and women. To see ourselves as servants to the other. To bless and protect. To esteem and to honor and to submit. So that we can best reflect God's best design for our relationships together. Well, there it is. There is a generational divide that we should bridge. And we can do it with God's help. Would you pray with me just for a moment? Bow your heads with me. I wonder this morning through this message if God is talking to someone about these things right now. Maybe, maybe it means uh, for someone in this room today letting go of anger or mistrust because you've been mistreated by the opposite sex. You've been hurt. You've been wounded. And maybe, maybe it means letting go of that anger, resentment. And maybe, maybe for someone it means ceasing to regard the opposite sex as objects and instead beginning to honor them and esteem them. Maybe it means changing the way you relate to folks around the office or other work environments or ministry teams or small groups. Wouldn't it be something if we could model in this place the original intent of our Creator God to love and honor and serve and dignify one another and both genders in such a way as to cause God to say, very good. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing and mysterious choice you made to create human beings, male and female. So much of it is mystery to us and yet wonderful. And we too often misuse this gift and create only heartache and pain. But we are so grateful for the goodness and potential that exists between us. We really do want to become the kind of men and women you want us to be and to build the kind of community about which you would say, very good. So help us to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, would you stand with me? <laughs>